Well, good evening. Good to see everybody. I go, we'll go ahead and get started. 95% of us are here. And then I think slowly people will trickle in. It's been awesome being with you guys. Appreciate your patience with me. I'm, I've been a little under the weather while I've been here, but it's it's been a joy just, yeah, getting to know you guys, and a lot of you already know really well, part of the joy of being here. Some of you, actually a number of you uh, have been piano students of mine, so I'm like looking at, oh, there are a lot of people who are piano students of mine. So some of you didn't know that I teach piano. That was like, that's like a thing I do. All right, well, <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8. We'll be looking at verses 31 through 39. Well, the title of my message tonight is The Gospel in Fear, just how the eternal gospel erases our everyday fears. As you think about the relationships of transparency, the relationships of prayer, those praying relationships that I'm like encouraging you to have, and one of the really important things to share with people are the kinds of fears that stick with you, the things you're scared of losing things you're scared are going to happen to you. What are your fears? What are kind of what are your stresses throughout your day? Because as you talk about your fears, you're actually going to start to see the kinds of things that can also take God's place, the kinds of things that become more important than God. Well, we're going to look at Romans 8, look at verses 31 to 39. Let me read this for us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long, we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, one thing I've learned now that I'm a father is uh, that children are experts at using their imagination. And the smaller the kid, the bigger the imagination. If my son Wesley uh, has a stick, or Isaac, then all of a sudden it transforms into something else. It's a lightsaber, it's like Link's master sword, or it's a baseball bat. But these big imaginations also generate big, big fears. A dark room is all my kids need for their imaginations to start careening out of control. Suddenly, um, monsters are watching them, unclassified scary creatures are scurrying around inside the walls, and behind their closet door lurks this unknown, dark, mysterious world of evil. So one of the legendary kids who's famous for his imagination is Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes. Hey, hey, who knows Calvin and Hobbes? Okay, awesome. So in one story, Calvin is certain that as soon as his parents are out of sight and the lights are off, there'll be something drooling under his bed. You guys know that one, right? At a moment's notice, just like a flip of the switch, 
Young Calvin goes from this world-class superhero to the local under-the-bed monster's supper. Right? And, and no doubt he speaks on behalf of a generation of little kids who feel that way, who feel that fear. So how does, how does fear get into our imagination? Well, all fear starts with the threat of loss. All fear starts with the threat of loss. I have, how many of you guys have had nightmares? Some people, a couple. In a nightmare, you're losing something, like you're losing your voice, or you're losing your security, you're losing your life, you're running from someone who's threatening to kill you. Right? And that threat of loss is taking a hold of your imagination. What fear works the same way when you're awake. Our life becomes this kind of living nightmare as we start believing the deceitful threats of our hearts. And a threat that once it's believed, it becomes this false prophet of the future that kind of freezes you and paralyzes you in the present. Right? What if my friendship fails me? What if my dad loses his job? What if I don't do well on this project? Or this test? What if this problem doesn't go away? What if I don't get into that college? What if this disease gets worse? What if I just fail at everything? All fear starts with that threat of loss. And as you think about that threat, meditate on it, give your attention to it, life just gets more and more scary. So kids know, little kids know, without anyone telling them, that they live in a world that isn't safe. And they think fear is a good reaction because it keeps you alert. And safe and on the lookout for monsters. And some people like being scared. They like that feeling because of always being alert on the, the adrenaline rush of potential loss. So um, my family, one time, I don't know if you know this, I, I grew up in Alabama, and my dad one time paid, in a moment of parental brilliance, paid for us to go to a haunted house, which was in like the middle of nowhere in Alabama. So we drove like an hour to get to this dirt road, and then we drove down that for like 15 minutes, and then at the end of that dirt road was this, the, the, by the way, the dirt road is just full of trees, so like this canopy of trees, and then we, at the end, we get to, uh, we get to this clearing, and it's just a line of trees, a few cars are parked, and um, it's just people parking on grass, and then if I look around the tree line, all of a sudden I see this one dark hole at the edge of the tree line, in one part of the tree line. And our job, our thing, we're supposed to just go through that dark hole and see what was waiting for us. So we went through that. And then all of a sudden we're faced with this giant house. And uh, no, we have to go inside. So we start walking up these creaking steps and slowly this door opens up and smoke starts kind of billowing out. And what do you think the first thing was that we heard? A chainsaw. I think I heard a chainsaw. Yeah, yeah. It was a chainsaw, right? So the chainsaw was the very first thing we saw, and then we're immediately plunged into this dark room full of smoke, and uh, just for the sake of time, I won't tell you, it was just terrifying. It was so scary. And then my mom, her maternal instincts started kicking in. She said, don't worry, kids, they can't touch us, like yelling that the whole way through. Don't worry, kids, they can't touch us. And then I, there was a point where I was kind of embarrassed, so I kind of got ahead of my family. But then I started getting scared, and so I started yelling, don't touch me, I have asthma, don't touch me, I have asthma, right? Because I had, like, you know, self-preservation. I was so scared, there were so many chainsaws. <laughs> so, what are you most afraid of? I mean, I think we're all afraid of chainsaws, but what are you afraid of? Are people in your life? Are you afraid of the future? Are you afraid of what people will say about you? Are you afraid of suffering? As you unmask that fear, you must ask, what does that fear threaten to take from me? 
What is it going to take from you? Fear can keep you in bed. It can keep you away from certain people. And it can even keep you away from God. But the gospel has the power to erase every fear so that those places of fear are turned into moments of ministry where you're set free to love people and love in situations where you were afraid. So tonight we're going to look at four fears that the gospel helps erase. Four fears the gospel erases. The first is in verse 31. Paul writes, the first is the, it erases the fear of people in verse 31. Paul writes, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, Paul has been talking about the gospel for eight chapters now, and he's coming to the end of his discussion of the gospel. We started talking about it this morning, Romans 1, he started talking about sin. Here's kind of the end of his gospel discussion. He's talking about all the benefits of the gospel, our adoption, and how happy we get to be in Christ because of all that he's given us. So Romans 8 is all about our adoption in the gospel, all the ways our Father promises to care for us. And Paul has just written one of the most comforting passages in all of the Bible, Romans 8, 28 through 30, which says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, that they might be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this is an amazing promise. Eternal salvation, secure. Nothing is going to separate us from God. We are secure. Salvation is there. Everything in our lives is going to work for our good, which is to make us like Christ. And now you can just imagine Paul tapping his quill or whatever it is that he was writing with. And, and just like saying, should I stop there? It's like, is that the end of this chapter? What else is there to say? And there's this moment where he says, I think I'm just going to keep saying Romans 8, 28 in different ways so that people understand what I'm talking about. So he says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Paul is saying, God is for us. God is for us. God is for us. So if you're here tonight, God is either for you or he's against you. And Paul is saying, if you're in the family, if you put your faith in Christ, God is for you. Therefore, nobody can be against you. Now, you might be thinking, really? Verse 35 makes it feel like there's a lot of things that can be against me. Um, I look at my life. I know I've got some teachers that are against me. They've singled me out and they hate me. Um, I've got issues with my parents being against me or siblings being against me, people at my school being against me. My life makes it feel like everything is working against me at times. What do you mean no one is against me? What Paul means is that no one succeeds in being against you because of verse 28. Everything in your life that you feel is designed against you, God turns into Christ-exalting, soul-sanctifying, faith-growing good for you. If God is for you, he even takes those things that are against you and makes them work for you. Think about the different pressures of your life. God is writing a story where he takes every single one of those pressures and makes them work for your good. So when God says, if I'm for you, who can be against you? He doesn't want you to picture him as this kind of superhero best friend or like a force field that comes around you and just keeps all the bad people out or 
This only lets people in and close to you who say nice things or think nice thoughts about you. God is saying that every unkind word about you, every angry outburst toward you, every trial or temptation you go through will be taken by your God and be used for you and not against you. So who do you fear? All that person can do to you and your family is good. Do you see how that erases fear? When you're set free from the fear of people, you're set free to actually love the people who before made you scared. From the gossiping peer, to the angry parent, to the unfair teacher, all they can do to you is good. And that's where you find the motivation to love your enemies, to love those who persecute you. I love how this truth kind of ignites us and sets us on fire for missions. So Romanian pastor Yosef's son recounted a time when he was being interrogated by six guys, and this is what he said to one of them. What is taking place here is not an encounter between you and me. This is an encounter between my God and me. My God is teaching me a lesson through you. I do not know what it is. Maybe he wants to teach me several lessons. I only know, sirs, that you will only do what God wants you to do and not go one inch further because you are only an instrument of my God. Every day, he says, every day I saw those six pompous men as nothing more than my father's puppets. Don't fear people. It can only do you good because of your God. So instead, you are free to love them. You see how the gospel erases fear? Paul says, let me say it another way. The gospel erases the fear of need. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Now, this is my favorite verse in the Bible. I don't usually like, talk about favorite things, but I wouldn't trade this verse for all the gold in Fort Knox. And this verse has kept me from sin so many times. Because when sin pulls me in with like these deceitful promises that tells me I need to look away from God to find happiness, this verse says, stop, stop. Like God has already given you that in Christ in a way that that provides life and not death. God does not keep things from you that he knows you need. A life that is lived under Romans 8.32 is a satisfied life. Do you feel unsatisfied? It might be because you expect someone or something to give you what God alone can give and what he's already given in Christ. Now I want to zoom in on the word delivered, or in your Bible might say given up. The Bible says that Judas delivered Christ over. It's the exact same word in Mark uh, 3.19. It says that Pilate delivered him over in in Mark 15.15. That Herod Herod and the Jewish people and the Gentiles delivered Christ over in Acts 4. That you and I delivered Christ to die in 1 Corinthians 15. It even says that Jesus delivered himself over in John 15. 10, 17, like no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. But what Paul is saying, the ultimate thing here in verse 32, is that behind all the other deliverings, God was delivering his son over to death. You you think you're clever, Judas, with your secret plan? You think you've got power, Pilate? You're a puppet. You think you're in control, soldier, because you've got a hammer and some nails? God did this. God did this, and it was the hardest thing in the universe for him to do. 
This verse should kill all the idolatry in this room. Because if God did not spare his own son, then what great thing do we think an idol is going to give us that our God is not going to give us in his love? What else does he need to do to show that he meets our needs? That he takes care of us. Why look anywhere else? If God paid the ultimate price in adopting you, what will he not provide you with now that you're his child? In debate, what Paul is doing is called arguing from the greater to the lesser. So what is a greater display of God's love and care? Providing his son as a sacrifice for sin or providing your daily needs like food and clothing and finances? What's a greater display of God's love? Satisfying his wrath against us by pouring out his wrath on Christ on the cross or healing your relationships? What is a greater display of his love? Punishing his son for our crimes or giving you joy and happiness and pleasures in your heart so that you don't turn to this world? Which is a greater display of God's love? I mean, not only is the gospel a greater display of love, those second things would not even happen if it wasn't for the first. So what do you want that you don't think God will give you? What things will you sin to get? Or sin to keep from losing. So God defined generosity when he gave his son to die for his enemies. He will not get stingy with you now that you are his child. That's why David says, Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So the gospel erases a fear of people. And it erases the fear of need. I'm not going to have enough. You will have enough. You have everything you need in Christ. We talked about that the first night. The fullness of Christ. Do you see how the gospel erases fear? Paul says, I'm going to just keep saying it. I'll say it another way. It erases the fear of words. Look at verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So these verses erase the fear of words because nothing can be said about you that will change how God sees you. And God's opinion of you is the only one that matters. I know not everyone in here believes that, but it's true. God's opinion of you is the only one that matters. Listen, there's only one person who's talking about you, only one person that has an opinion about you that matters to God, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he is your advocate. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Right? No one can make a charge stick in the, against us in the court of heaven, and that is the highest court. So this is pretty simple. God alone condemns, and God alone justifies. So if God has given us his righteousness to wear, then no accusation can stand, because that would mean an accusation would have to stick to Christ. And I'm wearing his righteousness. So you can kind of just picture Satan, right, like going into heaven, going into the throne room before God, accusing us with his list of things that all of your sins, right, all the reasons you deserve judgment and punishment, listing all the ways you violated God's law. But God won't care because Jesus Christ has taken all of your violations upon himself. God wrote the law. He enforces the law. God judges all who break the law. But because Christ died and because you have put faith in Christ, no accusation can stand against you. So whenever unloving words are being said 
about you. Maybe about your family. Remember there are words of salvation being spoken about you in heaven to give you courage on this earth. Man's opinion is of no significance to God. And if you believe this, it will save your life. It really will. It'll, especially in high school, it will save your life. This means that the harshest criticisms, the biting whispers, the lying rumors, the gossip, the sarcastic put-downs, not only shouldn't scare you, but all those words can do for you in the end is good because of who your God is. So don't fear people. Don't fear not having enough or not having what they have. Don't fear what they're going to say, their comments. Rather, let God's love so satisfy you that you're free to love the most unloving person that comes your way. So hopefully you see how the gospel erases all your fears, your fear of people, your fear of need, fear of words. Paul says, I'll say it one other way. It erases the fear of suffering. And this is 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here, Paul is giving two long lists of things that would like to separate you from God. Sufferings that would like to separate you from God. But nothing will work because Christ conquered all of those enemies when he died on the cross. So you can look at every threat that he lists here. Death tries to scare you. Life tries to scare you. Satan and his demons try to scare you. Stuff in the present seems scary. Stuff in the future seems scary. And lots of other things can threaten us and scare us, but nothing should. All their threats are empty. They are powerless to touch your adoption in the family through Christ. Now, it's really important to see that Paul's threats, his lists here, these two lists, they're not hypothetical. This, this list came from Paul's life. Most of the time, this is what Paul experienced, like stoning, shipwreck, beaten with whips by the Jews, beaten with rods by the Romans. He knew what it was like to go without food for a long time. He knew what it was like to not have adequate clothing and to live in a damp prison. He knew the danger because so many people wanted to kill him. He knew each day could be his last. So this list isn't theoretical. This list isn't like worst case scenario. These lists, Paul is saying, these lists are my life. These lists are my autobiography. And he's saying, I've, I've lived these lists and nothing can separate me from my father's love. In fact, more than that, in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, more than that, I will boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell within me. I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with difficulties. A lot of the same words. For Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You see, just the opposite happened. When the storms came threatening to separate him from God's love, all those storms ended up doing was make Paul experience more of God's love. It made the closeness between the father and his son stronger. So Paul wrote, now this letter, this letter to the Romans, during a winter when he was in prison in Corinth. And I don't think the Corinthian church or the Roman church could have known how little time Paul had left before he was going to be beheaded in Rome. 
And after he was beheaded, the people who received this letter that we're reading tonight, they were soon involved in a bloodbath that would soak the sands of the Roman amphitheater as Christians were killed in many different ways. Some of the people who read the same verses that we're reading tonight, they were mauled by wild beasts in the arena. Some of them, the Caesars used to light their dinner parties. They would pour oil over them and light them on fire. But it didn't matter what came. They read Romans 8. It didn't matter the extreme of the suffering. There was nothing that could separate them. They were safe in the love of Christ. The ultimate result, then, of enjoying your untouchable relationship with God should be courage in this world and compassion and love for the world. Listen to Joseph Son again, that Romanian missionary I was telling you about. This is what he said another time. During an early interrogation, I told an officer who was threatening to kill me, Sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know, my sermons on tape have spread all over the country. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everyone will know that I died for my preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, hmm, I'd better listen again to what this man preached. He must have really meant it. He sealed it with his life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I will actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me. After I said this, the interrogator sent me home. Another officer who was interrogating a pastor friend of mine told him, we know that Mr. Son would love to be a martyr, but we are not foolish enough to fulfill his request. I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. He said, I remember how for many years I had been afraid of dying. I had kept a low profile because I wanted badly to live. I had wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel... They were telling me they would not kill me. I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. Satan's attempts to, to snuff out the church, to scare us, to scare us from sharing the gospel, they only serve to spread the, the church, only to spread the gospel. The final threat that Paul lists in verse 39 is nothing else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God. Nothing else in all creation. That means not even you. You might feel in such complete bondage to sin that you think there's no hope of ever finding or feeling victory. And Jesus is saying the love of Christ is more powerful than the most powerful temptation. Right? The promise that you have is not as long as you are God's child, you can just forsake him and live a life of sin and unfaithfulness. Now, the promise is that because you are God's adopted child, he will not forsake you. And you will not, he will not let you forsake him and live a life of sin. John 10, 29 says, no one can snatch them out of my hands. There is no circumstance, no person, no threat, nothing that can change the embrace of your heavenly father. And he's not looking for a future version of you to love more than he loves you right now. And nothing will change his love. And it is his faithful embrace that keeps us living fearless lives for his glory. The hope you have that to drive away every fear in the future comes from something that happened 
2,000 years ago on the cross. And when people saw Christ hanging on the cross, they saw what seemed like tragic defeat. But today, when we look at the cross, we don't see tragic defeat. We see victory over sin, over death. And I pray that you see it as a victory over all your fears, your stresses, your anxieties. Once you live with the cross, the gospel at the center of your life, you'll feel every threat that kind of pushes and presses on you start to lose its power. It won't weigh as much on your life. Once you hope only in this gospel, you will feel your father's strong embrace holding you through each storm, each pressure, each challenge, and working every single one of those challenges for your good. Let me pray for us. So, Father, we, your children, we are convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor difficult people nor the pressures of school and family nor our own sin and selfishness can separate us from your love. But Father, we can say that, we can proclaim that, but so often we fail to live that. Lord, we want to enjoy you. We don't want our fears to keep us from trusting you. But forgive us for how often that happens. Father, we confess our hearts are prone to fear people, to fear not having enough, to... to uh, to fear the consequences of our past mistakes, to fear losing certain people or relationships that we love. And Father, we already know that as we go back home after this retreat, there's going to be fears waiting for us, demands, stresses. It will take us to stress and anxiety and escape and, and places other than Christ as a refuge. So I just ask, Father, that in your grace you would grant each heart here the courage to hold on to the gospel, to remember the story of grace that is unfolding in each life here, to hold on to the solid rock of Christ, knowing that all other safe havens that the world promises to provide are just sinking sand. By your grace, Father, keep us running toward you. Keep us running to your all-powerful all loving, all wise arms, and just living in that embrace, trusting it, resting that you are working everything together for our good. Thank you for that hope. Thank you for the life that you have promised us in Christ because of the gospel. In, his name, in Christ, in Christ.